Welcome back to Emerge. So this is part two of my conversation with Zach Stein. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend that you do before you listen to this recording. Uh, it probably actually will make sense for the most part if you don't listen to part one, but you'll get a lot more out of the experience if you listen to part one first. As with last week, I want to let you know about an event coming up that we're hosting here at the Monastic Academy, and that's the Bioemotive Emotional Processing Retreat taking place this September from the 18th to the 25th. Doug Tatterin, who has been a previous guest of the show, will be leading it. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I recommend listening to the episode I did with him, but the short version is that the Bioemotive Framework is a super effective method for resolving emotional blockages, healing trauma, and freeing up life energy and opening the heart. So in this uh, week-long retreat, we get to learn the whole protocol from soup to nuts so that you can both do it on your own for yourself as well as uh, support others in going through uh, their own process. And then we also leverage the bioemotive protocol within the context of we space practices like circling to explore what intimacy looks like um, through and beyond our emotional wounding. And so it's really exciting. We did this for the first time last year and it was amazing. It was really, really a wonderful experience. And um, I would love to have folks who listen to the show come and join us. And so if you want to learn more about the event, you can go to www.monasticacademy.com slash event. That's www.monasticacademy.com slash events. I think where I want to go, and it's interesting, right? Because like where I was before the retreat and coming out into the pandemic was wanting to take the inquiry of this podcast really more squarely into uh, how do we become the kind of people who can participate in this transition in this time between worlds in this creation and discovery and moving into a new attractor base and however you want to frame it. Um, and I, I could feel myself like in the past couple of weeks since I left kind of wobbling on that intention in a lot of different directions. And just in this conversation, I feel much more reconnected to that. Good. Like, Oh, okay. That was actually a trustworthy way of relating to the situation. Right. And in fact, COVID and the unrest uh, properly understood might just make me more firmly planted in that mm. as being that which is most important. Um, and so I would love to spend some time like talking about what that looks like. You know, what does it look like to really take this seriously, take our individual transformation, our uh, responsibility to ourselves and thus to the people around us, like really seriously and think about it mm -hmm. well and respond to it yeah. skillfully. Totally. It's a great question. And yeah, I mean, so I will breach a couple topics in the metapsychology <clears throat> and present a frame for thinking about human development, which helps to answer the question, right? So over a long period of time, 
I came to distill uh, the metapsychology into three large categories, which are influenced by Forrest Landry's metaphysics and Ken Wilber's integral psychology and a whole bunch of other work that I've kind of digested over the past time. And so the psyche is at least a triple of development, ensoulment, and transcendence. Mm. Um, and development includes all of the stuff that gets discussed in developmental psychology, the model of hierarchical complexity, the kind of spiral dynamics stuff, Elliot Jacks' work, electrical assessment system, a lot of what Wilbur discussing, mm. stuff like that. This is in the development bucket. In the transcendence bucket, as you can imagine, this includes all the work that's done on states of consciousness, meditation, kind of mind-body regulation, like energy fields within the body, state stuff, mm -hmm. um, metacognition. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Solman includes all the work involved with, you know, basically Hillman, Jung, depth psychology, sometimes called shadow work, or typical stuff, right? So those mm -hmm. are the triple. Mm -hmm. And they all require one another. And there's a complex way that they relate, but I'm not going to get into that. The, the one point I wanted to make here is that to take responsibility in the context of where we are now, one needs to be working on those three dimensions of oneself mm. and aware of them in others. And, mm. you know, good parents, good teachers, good caregivers are intuitively aware roughly of this distinction. And usually when I lay it out, people are like, okay, that makes sense. Because they know that if you just talk about development, as if the way to solve yourself and others' problems is to just become more complex thinker, mm. right? They know that that can't possibly be true. But mm. you also know that just meditating is not mm. enough, mm. and neither is just kind of drowning in your shadow and doing depth psychological work. Mm. Like each of those feels partial. Mm. Um, and so there's the sense that to respond appropriately, one needs to somehow engage across these modalities in a way that really recapacitates self and community in those mm. aspects. And, mm. you know, a lot of the sense-making talk is just in the domain of development. It's entirely mm. the domain of development. It's just about getting a much more abstract and complex and comprehensive mm. and omniconsidered view of the world mm. in terms of up-leveling your capacity for mm. thought and complex thinking and dealing with complexity, mm. which well, is yeah. hugely important. But Whereas your notion of sense-making, you said the proof in the pudding of your sense-making is the embodiment right. of love. Right. It's about those three relating. And, and the embodiment of love happens when those three are kind of functioning adequately. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that's what's so interesting about love as an emotion is that it's very complex, noetic process. It involves the knowing of the other in a different way. And it involves ensoulment and it's a transcendent experience. So the, mm. the, the kind of, the complexity of the inner animation of those. And so when I was talking before about how obsession with hyper-complex meta-narratives can disable you in the realm of your concrete commitments, what I was saying was that if you just focus on getting a more complex narrative, you can actually fuck with your ability mm. to meditate and to deal with your own personality and installment processes. Mm. Um, mm. And so there's like a limiting function that's placed on each of them mm. by the others. Right. Mm. So similarly, and current company excluded, if all you do is meditate <laughs> and you don't engage in any rigorous conceptual work or any psychodynamic work, that can really fuck you up too, to the extent where those mm. things become averse and you will not engage in them because they're mm. not the true mm. whatever you've experienced in meditation. Uh, and likewise, you find a certain kind of like uh, 
hegemony often given to shadow work or mm. archetypal work. So the balancing mm. of those is key. And what that means is that it's only a third of the work that needs to be done is in the realm of the conceptual and linguistic and the understanding of the mm. world situation. Mm. Another third is right in the wheelhouse of your mm. kind of deepest uh, relationships and the deepest processes of your self and identity development. And then another third's in this, how do you relate to your own mind? How do you relate to your own body? What's mm. the nature of your consciousness as such? Right? Mm. Another way to run the triple is skill, personality, and consciousness. Mm. Um, third, mm. development, skill, personality, mm. and soul, mm. consciousness, transcendence. Right? Mm. That these different aspects of the psyche um, need attention, care, and concern. And... You know, it's often the case that we, again, intuitively know this, like if you are with someone and they are deep in the meta narrative to the extent of being confused, your instinct is not to give them more complexity to resolve the issue. Right. Your your instinct is ground in your body. Take some breaths, man. Move out of the omniscient into the transcendent, to use forest language, right? Out of the development into consciousness. Um, and then that allows you to ground back in insolment. And then from the center of insolment, you can move back into the development, right? So there's what's called an axiom two transition <laughs> in, in, uh, in the imminent metaphysics of, of Landry. And so that's kind of the way I'm modeling the individual, right? Uh, and then there's something comparable at the level of community, which is to say that when you have a group like at the monastery, each individual is manifesting the triple, and then the culture as a whole is manifesting something like that triple. Mm. What's the group's actual capacity state? Mm. <laughs> What's the group's kind of commitment to personhood and sharing, and then that notion of the transcendence, sharing in the symbolic. Right. You know, uh, another way to run the triple is actually, you know, well, development skill, language, right? Huh. Insolment, person, image. Huh. Transcendent consciousness symbol. Huh. So symbol, image, oh, language, right? Yeah. The modalities of these psychological processes. The development is completely mediated by language. And so much largely mediated by Im- image. And transcendence is largely mediated by symbol. Huh. And so that means that part of what we need to do is create new languages, right? Repopulate the world of image and recraft the transcendent symbol. And that's at the level of the individual and the level of the community. We need Mm -hmm. new symbols of our shared consciousness and commitment, just like we need new images or myths that we can kind of like move deeper into insolment with. And of course, we need much more complex language to discuss what's actually taking place in the world. and so that frame is very useful, both meta-theoretically in terms of just organizing the field of psychology, uh, but also in terms of the kind of balancing, kind of like quasi late 1990s, like integral transformative practice. Mm-hmm. Like let's get everything on the table we know needs mm-hmm. to be handled when thinking about the mm-hmm. psyche mm-hmm. so that we don't end up kind of in a dangerous way, tipping the balance mm-hmm. of the psyche towards just increasingly complex development or just increasingly tragic shadow work and mm-hmm. like that the, the mud of it all mm-hmm. um so yeah so that's kind of a long answer to your question which is to say 
the way to do what you're asking is to have some balance across those dimensions of the metapsychological model, which means not that you don't do complex linguistically mediated sense-making of the global mm -hmm. situation. You absolutely do. And you do even more detailed complex sense-making of your local situation. Mm. Like, what do I need to make my house safe, healthy place? What do I need to make sure that, you know, resources are available? Like, this is all important capacity development work. Mm. But that's a third, at least, mm. <laughs> of the yeah. other things that need mm. to be taking place so that you don't become unmoored. And again, they're mm. all sources of information. That's what you get. It's not just that knowledge is created mm. over with development. You get knowledge yeah. from engaging with the images that arise through soul making and you get knowledge from kind of resting in the symbol that kind of like dawns through uh, transcendence and consciousness and these all need to be woven together but they're making very different validity claims right. and they need to be balanced and so that's why you can be in a situation where you know the world from a cognitive perspective just looks like it's not going to work out yeah. <laughs> But you can have in these other dimensions of yeah. your being a yeah. certain kind of faith and assurance yeah. that there's a process unfolding which can't be linguistically mediated and explained but can be known uh, anyway uh, mm -hmm. and that's part of the picture mm -hmm. too mm -hmm. is not letting the need for knowledge be reduced to the conceptual and linguistic and being mm -hmm. able to actually in your in your sphere of influence project and transmit those forms of knowledge, which aren't saying, hey, I have it all figured out, we're going to be fine. That's actually not what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You're saying we don't have it all figured out, right? But because we are here together, right, in a certain commitment to certain things, we know that at some level we will be fine, uh, even if we all die, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that is outside of, you know, that's in these other two dimensions of the mm -hmm. psyche. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, mm. But even at the com most complex level of development, you get these very kind of strange statements like that. That it's all going to be okay, even yeah. though you're dying. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the you know the question of how to how to do all that is, I think, very unique to each person's situation. But this do is do all that meaning meaning get those integrations get those, going yeah. and getting those rotations between the different dimensions like moving out of installment into the development mm. into the transcendence mm. back to installment this kind of mm. cycle of growth um, mm. like real holistic full person growth mm. Mm. getting that all going is a completely unique endeavor for each person mm. <laughs> but, but the meta frame is I think pretty pretty universal um, so yeah so that's that would be the way I would answer. And also just broaching on what you said you wanted more metapsychology. Totally. So I gave it to yeah, you. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Zach. And um, I mean, there's like a hundred different paths we could take here. Uh, one thing, well, I wonder if you could actually, this is maybe a little nuanced, but disambiguate between image and symbol. Mm -hmm. it, I, I imagine, I know for me, that can be a little bit conflated. Right, totally. Yeah, so the the image is much more like a fragment of a myth. The image is unique and like a piece of a dramatic play. Mm. Like you're catching a fragment, sometimes called a mythogym, like a, a piece of a myth, right? Symbol is very different. Symbol is radically simple and often kind of 
not moving. It's not a moving picture in the mm. way that the myth is. So the symbol ends up being something like a cross. The cross. Yeah. Right. I see. Whereas the image is Jesus on the cross with Mary and on one side and the other Mary on the other side, and the blood dripping into the cup. Boom. That's the image. Right. But that is so rich and textured in my individual relationship to that right. image. Which one am I? Oh, I'm all three of them and the blood. Like it's this complex mm. process. Whereas the symbol is just simply the yeah. cross, which is this radically universal, decontextualized, kind of like meta, you know, meta consciousness, something like that. Mm. And so that uh, that's a little bit of the difference. And then again, the it's also about the relationship between them. So mm. you move in the model from the insolvent process to the development process from the imminent to the omniscient. Mm. And that means that the precisely the image lands. And the next thing you do is move it into language. You analyze it, you talk about it, mm. you work the image over to build it into the skill set, conceptual understanding, all that stuff. Mm. But then you pop out the top end of the complexity to boom, the cross it just mm. sits there glowing mm. or something. And that becomes a reference then to and that becomes felt sense of the image and the right. relationship. Exactly. Behind. It collapses the whole complex process right. into, into just this. And then the emotion and the action that comes from it and the simple forms of reverence are become radically impersonal, mm. right? Like the transcendent, the modality of consciousness and of symbol is radically impersonal, whereas the image process of ensoulment is radically personal. Yeah. And then development's neither personal nor impersonal, basically. Right. Right. <laughs> but language is shared between us. It's actually kind of in some ways intersubjective or uh, objective. And so that's a, that's a little bit on those distinctions. And it's the symbol image distinction is key because it's confused a lot. You know, often what you're looking for is an image when you think you want a symbol, right? Mm. Uh, and vice versa. Mm. And it, you have to get that, again, to use Jesus on the cross, the blood dripping, and Mary on either side of him. Like, that is part of this broader story. It's part mm. of the broader, the theatrics of ensoulment get played out through mm. the image. And so mm. there's a rich texture there, and sometimes that's what's needed to cure is actually to deepen the process of insolment almost mm. through a kind of, you know, like a mystification and a relinguistification of emotion and experience. Whereas mm. again, the symbol is not that. It's much cleaner, much more impersonal, and not about to be moved into language, which is what the image is, but just emerged from the limits of language. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, and then vibing with the symbol reorients the process of ensoulment. New images emerge, mm. those images are made sense of, and then you just mm. move around. Mm. So when you're thinking about what emerges at the very highest kind of like mm. um, realm of abstraction and complexity, uh, you end up getting these things emerging that look like these weird symbols. The most mm. classic ones like E equals MC squared. Mm. It's a symbol. It's mm. weird. <laughs> mm. You know, like it means so much and it's just sitting there mm. on the chalkboard. Mm. Um, and, uh, and again, universally applicable, um, weird scientific kind of like cult symbol. <laughs> That's where I can tell the worshiping mm. of theoretical physics through mm. that 
symbol system. Mm-hmm. And so I've said all that, and then you have to think about, okay, which, so that's a structural model, let's say. Yeah. Which forms of content actually facilitate right. it best, right? So you, like I used E equals MC squared. Mm-hmm. So if you're a member of the cult of science, let's call it, yeah. <laughs> the question is how much does a cult of science actually facilitate mm-hmm. things outside of skill development and complexity mm. development and linguistic development, mm. right? Is there even a language within the cult of science for engaging with the insolvent processes, right? And explicating the symbolic and the purely conscious. Um, and likewise, like Buddhism versus Christianity, like which of those allows for all three to flourish as opposed to focusing development of self in one area, right? Or growth yeah. of self, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So once you see the kind of how the structure works, then you can help to think about like, uh, you know, which forms of content help me do that. And again, like I said, there are certain types of meta narratives, which literally pull you out of that stuff and up and into this complex, completely unverifiable world of abstraction and language mm-hmm. um, that can disable your ability to do work in these other domains. Um, so that's a little bit of how you run kind of quality control on like your information consumption yeah. and your commitments. Is yeah. thinking about the, do these commitments and this these engagements allow me to continue to be whole or not? Um, and and whole then would mean uh, feeling like you're adequately kind of resourced or tapping into each of those three dimensions. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Huh. And so um, it seems like. The, the pathology, or uh, whatever you want to call it, of the larger culture is, is a kind of monomaniacal focus on skill and development. Totally. Uh, and then within my subculture, you know, the kind of Buddhist contemplative world, there's a, um, an appreciation of the transcendent and uh, in, in my even smaller subculture, an appreciation of the the kind of relationship between the transcendent and the developmental and the kind of, um, but I think the, it, I, my, my, my sense is that both in, in that milieu, as well as more broadly in the kind of developmental culture, the, it's the, it's the insolment that really lags behind mm-hmm. in terms of its emphasis. And, and usually when I see it even named, it's talked about purely in terms of like trauma and healing our, Right. unresolved experiences and our attachment patterning and all that. And so I wonder if you could speak into the broader context of that yeah. part of the third. Totally. Um, yeah, the, there are small little niche communities where psychotherapeutic and like drama therapy and circling and places like that, where the emphasis is actually on just being in the insolvent process, for example, but those are rare hard to find. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there has been in general in the culture, um, kind of like quote unquote Western culture. Uh, there's been a very strong bias and omniscient bias, a bias towards abstraction, towards mm-hmm. language, towards mathematics, and then specifically towards personality development as an aspect of the skill development needed to get a job, right? Reductive mm-hmm. human capital theory. So there's a tremendous amount of cultural inertia moving in that direction mm-hmm. of being biased towards development, language, and abstraction. Mm. And that's important uh, to get because some of the moves that privilege transcendence and then those communities that get into insolment end up 
becoming reactionary against mm. the scientific, the discursive, you know, and this is my experience um, a lot in kind of, you know, spiritual communities is that it's like no thinking allowed. Right. The idea. And I get that because there's way too much right. thinking, right. <laughs> if you want to call it that, in the world, <laughs> moving language around right. and mm. concepts and, and abstractions. Um, but it's easier, in fact, to get a marriage between the Western scientific kind of bias of like materialism since the 16th century. It's easy, actually easier to get a marriage between those and the transcendent and the Buddhistic than it is to get the insolvent piece in. <clears throat> and this is important to get. Like there's actually, since the 90s, been kind of a conspiracy between yeah. theoretical physicists and Buddhists, <laughs> totally. right? Absolutely. And a little bit of like postmodernism in there too, oh, yeah. where it's like, oh, emptiness is actually about quantum mechanics yeah. and deconstruction. And yeah. you're like, mm, no, it's not. <laughs> mm. But you can see how that, mm. how there's a, there's a kind of easy marriage there. And I've written about this in my book where I talk about this Slavov Zizek quote where he says like, you know, Buddhism is kind of the greatest ideological grease that we could put on the kind of wheels of yeah. global capitalism to help yeah. it continue to, yeah. to accelerate. But Insolment would have none of that right. because it is about um, who you are and the values you have, the emotion you have, and the structure of your lived experience from, like a you know, for lack of a better phrase, like a, a mythopoetic dimension. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's interesting to think mm -hmm. like, you know, the, the way psychoanalysis and depth psychology got transformed into cognitive behavioral therapy and drug therapy, right? Mm -hmm. That the places for the deep insolment and reflection work have always been very dangerous mm -hmm. to the status quo. More so, let's say, than the ability to self-regulate your, your pulse and to drop your stress through meditation and to just be calm even when the world's falling apart. Like It's important to do. But to do the insolment work when the world's falling apart means crying your goddamn eyes out and screaming desperately for a more just world, right? And remembering the images that are so tragic it's hard to even hold them in your mind. Like That's the work that's necessary to do. But it's precisely the work that's the most frightening and the most challenging mm. to the culture, let's yeah. say. And if you don't do it well, you end up getting a lot of the stuff that we're seeing, which is the inability to process tragedy mm. and the inability to, in a reasonable way, hold those images, those fragments of myth, right? Like black man with a knee on his throat from a police officer. That's an image. It's a deeply, deeply mm. provocative image in exactly the way I'm mm. expressing it, right? That it's like part of a bigger myth. It's like a little temporal slice oh. of a much bigger myth. Um, and so that has evoked so much intensity precisely because it's just like this invitation to insolment and we just don't have the languages of insolment, right? Mm. Whereas something like a virus is an invitation to like biomedical complexity and statistics and vaccines mm. and all of this stuff. And we're thinking that we can handle the virus from the perspective of the omniscient and development and language and concept. Now, of course, the virus also invokes death and right. illness and care and a whole bunch of other things. So that's, again, it was like, you know, the virus was much more 
potentially in the wheelhouse of our culture mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, than some of these images that we're now being saturated with, which are images humans have always had of uh, injustice, violence, um, the least well-off put at greater disadvantage by those with asymmetric power, like a whole bunch of complex stuff, which again, is it's not stuff that is uh, unique to our society. These are the, the cauldron of human experience we've been in forever. Uh, and I'm not saying it can't change, but what I am saying is like, unless we have grown up with or been fortunate enough to yeah. be put in a cauldron of tragedy, it becomes impossible to hold the tragic images with maturity and then to cycle them through the rest of the, the rest of the parts of you, right? To move from that tragic image into actually making sense of what's going on and then to finding a way even out of that sense to something that's transcendent that allows you to resolve whatever's happening and kind of open mm-hmm. awareness or, or a, sim- a simplicity on the other side of the complexity of the language. And so if we can't resolve the image because it's so overwhelming the process of our personality, then, we'll, then when we move to start to make sense of it in language with, you know, like what actually is the situation with police officers in my city, like we can't mm-hmm. even go there because the process, again, of insolvent and personality mm-hmm. and the traumatic imaging hasn't been held. So I think we confuse insolvent with trauma now, and we confuse what needs to be post-tragic move through all three with the purely tragic kind of like stagnation within the unbearable image. Um, Mm. And uh, yeah, it's one of the things that I kind of think about a lot, you know, it's like, what are the collective processes of insolvent? Mm. Um, and they're different from collective sense-making or collective intelligence, which is where most of the kind of like ink is spilled, although it's not ink anymore, uh, where most of the bits are, are spilled <laughs> is about how do we build a collective intelligence, collective sense-making, which is key. But again, it's a third of it. <laughs> we also need forms of collective and soul and personality development and forms of collective transcendence. Um, yes. And if we just focus on booting up hyper-complex collective intelligence, uh, then that thing can spiral completely out of control and and as it seems to be doing. And so, so yeah, so I think, and this is one of the things that kind of dawned on me just in the past few years for a bunch of reasons is that, you know, the main event is actually the personality. The main event is actually insolvent and back to the metaphysics the imminent is primary the omniscient and the transcendent are conjugate they follow mm. the place to start is always with the imminent uh, and so that means that actually mm. the, the primary root of the issue ends up being at that level of character structure personality development mm. and uh some personality uh dynamics and uh and insolvent um but most of psychology doesn't function that way with the small exception of like the Jungians and people who still are committed to doing real depth psychology. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's a, uh, it's tricky business. It's very tricky business. Yeah. I mean, at the, it, it's very small, the world of people who seem invested in that right. arena of exploration. And as you say, it's very explosive when done yeah. poorly. Yeah. And yet we inevitably must engage with it. And I wonder yeah, like you bring up the image of 
George Floyd, right? That there is an image there. And that partly that's what has erupted yeah. the collective psyche is, is there was an eruption from the bearing witness of that image. And I, I'm thinking in my own relationship to that image and how easy it is to tip into the transcendent, like to just sort of like let go and be kind of unaffected by it right. or to tip into making sense out of it from an intellectual kind of, uh, again, abstracted sort of perspective right. where I'm like, well, let's look at the data like around police violence right. and try to kind of solve it intellectually right. and how much I tremble when I try to approach it from the perspective of installment. Right. Because right. when you're working the image over, you're precisely not getting out into the transcendent and you're not quite getting out into the conceptual. It's like doing dream work. Right? Yeah. You, you marinate in the image and work it over from all the different angles and you take the perspective of each of the characters richly enough that you can feel it. And so to linger in an image like that, just like lingering with Jesus on the cross, not very nice. Like, that's painful, you know? Um, uh, so, so you're right. There's a tendency to want to escape from the unbearable image. And first you need to fully perceive it. Um, and you know, the, the kind of the deepest elements of the image work, um, are, uh, I think, and you can speak to this with your engagement with the soul making Dharma, mm -hmm. that the, the image work ends up being transformative at a different level of personality than intellectual development or you know consciousness development state training stuff uh, and so that's actually what's being asked of the culture now mm. we're not being asked to transcend this shit and we're not being asked really to make sense of this shit we're being asked to work mm. over the mm. images that keep arising from our collective unconscious and many of them are about as the collective unconscious tends to do about the traumas that we've been through but also about the incredible thing. So that's the other thing. There's, there's other images, you know, taking mm. place, uh, in the culture. It's just that whenever you begin this kind of work, the kind of darkest, scariest ones are the ones that seem to be most salient mm. first. Mm. Uh, so the other question to ask here is what are the other images <laughs> of mm. the moment? Mm. Right. And also what are the images that need to be crafted or created? Right. Mm -hmm. And since modernity has been unfolding and there's been this like fragmentation of the value spheres and all these things, there's always been this sense of like the artist would be the savior. Right. And the insight there is actually an insight in to the meta psychology and the primacy mm -hmm. of ensoulment vis-a-vis -vis the other two. Mm -hmm. That in fact, we can't start with a complex long book that explains the whole situation, right? And we can't start with some symbol that unites us. We actually have to start with some kind of image that captures and clarifies for us just who we are and what's happening. Mm. Right? And mm. Mm. so, yeah, the images that are now circulating through social media are telling us a lot about ourselves, but they're not telling us the whole picture about what we are and what's actually happening. And so the mm -hmm. question of what that is, I think is, is interesting. I, I don't have an answer, but I do know that at some point, again, back to the psychotic break metaphor, at some point you start to get these spontaneously occurring images, which 
instead of creating more incoherence, start to create coherence. Hmm. Um, hmm. And uh, and then, of course, if you're a therapist working with somebody, you're like, oh, there it was. Hmm. <laughs> like, That's the image. Hmm. Oh, wait, now slow down, slow down, look at that image. You made that image. Hmm. That came from your mind, hmm. right? This is an incredibly hmm. rich image which speaks hmm. to your whole personal development and yeah. all the things that have happened to you. Yeah. Let's linger on that image. Let's keep coming back yeah. to that image. This is the image around which new coherence of self and identity can congeal, right? If you're a bad therapist, then you will basically glom on to the images that do the opposite. Um, Maybe you're theoretically misguided. Maybe you're obsessed with trauma and re-traumatization and all those things. So it's about which, how do we catch the images as they arise, which are potentially the focal point of the recalibration of self, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, Rob Rabea would say in the soul making work, he said that uh, when doing this work, it's good to take on a way of looking that understands that image is actually primary. It's upon that, which everything else sort of generates. And in fact, it's in our participation with the image that the the whole thing kind of shifts and rests. And so thinking back to my retreat, you know, I had a very personal image arise and one that had a lot of suffering uh, I could see throughout my life kind of wrapped up in it, like parts of my psyche and how I show up in the world. Um, but in being with it in, in a kind of, in a particular way, it opened up into this really beautiful, mm. soulful, meaningful, and even sacred way into my soul, into my personhood. And so I, I never thought about it like this, but that these images that are kind of rocking our collective right now, like depending on the way that we, so to speak, we quotation marks participate with those images there. Well, I guess there's a lot of potential there. There's just, there's a lot Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. I mean, Hillman talks about the, the root metaphor of your experience that it's not like you contemplate an image, although you do, you actually live within the image. The image becomes like the staging of your life or the root metaphor, or the archetypal frame, mm. which gives meaning to everything else you're doing. This is why you're building your skill. This is why that symbol is powerful. It's why you're sitting there and not moving. It's because you are resting in a particular image. Uh, so the image as the root metaphor of experience so the yeah the resolution of the so-called meaning crisis is precisely the kind of recharacterization of the root image mm. of mm. The personhood uh wow. and i don't know what again what that image is but my sense is that at some point in the near future there will be well, again, we're in, we're overwhelmed by images now because of the complexity of this kind of psychotic break processing at the level of the newosphere, but something, some image will, it's just will emerge. That could be the image around which coherence could be generated. And then the question becomes, can we move on that image to, to, to move the, to get the process to its kind of like quote natural kind of resolution, which is how many of these types of psychic break processes work. They need to be, you go down and in until you find that way out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, huh. And uh, it's important, you know, and it's not like a hero's journey. That's what you have to get. Like 
It's not, we chose to go down in the cave in pursuit of wisdom. It's more like the rape of Persephone, right? Mm. It's more like you're pulled into the underworld. You're yeah. pulled into the underworld, and then who gets Persephone out, right? Hermes, right? In conjunction with her mother and Hecate, I think. So you end up getting this much more complex myth of kind of Alice in Wonderland involuntary dip into mm. the like complete mm. nuttiness, and then this this way back out, which involves mm. a reimagining of the self and of that whole story that happened. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so that question is like, yeah, like, you know, when and how will the image emerge? And then will we be in a position as a culture to, to actually grab it, uh. you know, to actually grab it. Uh, and I don't know. Now I do know that the level of individuals in particular communities and families, it will be easier to do that. Right that in the midst of all of this, I'm sure it's already happened to people. A lot of identity transformation has taken place and a lot of new kind of root metaphors for the self, root metaphors for the meaning of one's life, these, that these things have emerged, right? Mm -hmm. Alongside horrible images, frightening images, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it will be happening. And this question is, is there something that could congeal coherence at the level of mm -hmm. the neosphere, the whole mm -hmm. culture? This is my hope, really, kind of faith mm -hmm. that there's this kind of certain self-organizing dynamic to the individual psyche. And I imagine that in the anima mundi, in the, mm -hmm. in the soul of the world, there's also some kind of self-organizing dynamic. Mm -hmm. you know, self-organizing doesn't mean orderly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact, self-organizing usually involves catastrophic disruptions and higher level reorganizations and that stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's in a sense what I'm, what I'm kind of looking for. I'm mm -hmm. looking for how that could happen. And I don't know that I have any role to play, but I do know that, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's kind of like a waiting in anticipation that becomes right. necessary for a lot of people. Because right, no, nobody can intentionally produce this. I don't think so. just yeah. The attempt pop out right spontaneously from the collector. Yeah, if you're attempting to to produce it, uh, then you've made a huge mistake in understanding what I'm talking about. Basically, this is not a strategic move. The, the very fact that it can't be a strategic move is what makes it exactly what it is. It's got to be yeah. spontaneous, and that's some of the reason that you know a lot of the contemporary images are so can't play that role. Because it's clear mm. they're part of an informational ecosystem that's being right. manipulated. Right, it has to come from the kind of transcendent into the soul. Yeah. It has to be beyond what it has to be. Right, right exactly. Yeah. It has to be beyond. It has to come from uh, afar and off stage, and it can't be suspect of um, of strategic intent and, and these kind of things. So, uh, there are two pieces I want to kind of fill in before we end. One is. Um, uh, from uh, like on an individual level or in a community level, like how do we become more available to this kind of work? Right. So you said that, you know, whether or not the collective can sort of encounter this image skillfully, we don't know yet, right. but that perhaps individuals and families and communities can like, how, what's, what's involved with that capacity on the more like local and individual level. Right. Uh, I mean, a few things. One is got to be, and I sound like a broken record here, but turning the volume down 
on the images that are algorithmically curated for you to consume, mm. right? Like most commercials fall under the rubric of the images we've described. It. Commercials are like mm. these, these little fragments of myth, and like you're somehow part of this myth, right? So it's like right. turn down the volume on the images that are algorithmically curated for your consumption and turn up the volume on the images that are arising from your own unconscious and those around you, right? So uh, every morning at breakfast, the family talks about their dreams, mm. for example, right? That you uh, engage in uh, forms of open sharing that feel vulnerable and almost dangerous with the people who are closest to you, right? The notion of like bearing one's hearts or revealing the thoughts of the heart, mm. those types of conversations is what we need. And my guess is that many of those have been happening because of the situation of duress that we're under. Yeah. So it's kind of like stepping into that cauldron of soul making uh, is what's required. And um, again, it's, that means checking out of like the Oh, I'm building skill development to pursue a better job and get more remuneration, or I'm dialing in my meditative practice so I'm never emotionally perturbed or whatever that is. That's not the work, right? That can help sometimes create a place for that work to take place, but that work is the work uh, that takes place with tears and laughter, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and kind of the enactment of the image through relationship and conversation. So a lot of what I'm saying here is that that work is done together, right? Mm. This work is done together and it's done mm. with a modality of relating, which is usually found most commonly between, you know, lovers right. and uh, families um, and some forms of like deep religious commitment to one another. So the more we're comfortable with those kinds of interactions, yeah. the more we can imagine them being expanded beyond our immediate circle. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, and again, this is why the artist and the movie, you know, movies are fascinating in this respect that, you know, where else in our society? And it's funny. There's so much talk about that. The movie theaters are closed, right? The movie theaters are closed. And it's like, cause it's one of the few places in our society. We all kind of sit there and watch these images moving together, different than being alone in front of your screen. Yeah. We're all together looking at these same images and we're crying and we're laughing, right? And, and insight and epiphany and metanoia occur like, and so, so yeah, engaging in uh, real kind of aesthetic, mm. uh, real aesthetic engagements and um, an aestheticization or mm. mythologization of one's own being mm. and life mm. Um, mm. Is, is part of it. Um, mm. And so that's pretty vague advice. <laughs> I think keeping a dream journal and things of that nature yeah. actually go way, way farther than people. Yeah, but, but to a certain degree, that, that that whole movement thrives on that kind of ambiguity and mystification. If you try to kind of consolidate it yeah, or you lay aside too much, it kills it. Then you move into the development. Yeah, you know? yeah. And yeah, no, the, there's always a, there's an art to it with yeah. the image. And yes. doing dream work with someone 
when they're telling the dream and you're working the image over, that's not like a scientific cognitive right. behavioral therapy process. Right. That's a deepening and, a, and an enriching and, uh, and sometimes a putrefication and a decaying, like there are these mm -hmm. alchemical metaphors that are appropriate as opposed to like ladder climbing and, 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 uh, you know, metacognition and these other metaphors. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so a lot of it is returning to those, um, sources of, of deep engagement, those, those types of conversations and those types of experiences. And I think we're actually, or the whole imagistic kind of dimension is so hijacked by the images that are algorithmically curated for our consumption that simply just turning those down. Like for example, if you were to take a, a complete holiday from that kind of stuff as you did, right? It would be hard to keep the images out mm. again this is you know some of the reason why people don't want to do that because the mm. flood of images is going to be all across the board you know yeah. um uh, but that's what you need to be in and so uh -huh. yeah so uh -huh. so that's something get uh -huh. get into a situation where the your kind of native kind of intrinsic images continue to emerge and arise or mm. or again emerge and arise mm. yeah and then the last thing I'd just like to hear you her, uh, kind of touch on is this whole territory of ethics, which I think is also a kind of arena that tends to get sacrificed in our current developmental transformational culture, right? That we right. forget about the ethical, the world of ethics, the world right. of virtue, the world of the moral imagination. Right. Um, and, and I feel like that's a great tragedy. And, and my sense is that a lot of that which I find most beautiful about ethics is actually implicated in insolment mm -hmm. more than it is, or as much as it is in the development and the transcendent mm -hmm. moves. Totally. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, ethics is implicated across all yeah. three, but the place where the ethics punches you in the stomach <laughs> is in that, domain of insolment. And again, confusion in that domain is a lot of what leads just to the hyper virtue signaling culture we have right now. Because if there's a lack of embodied clarity that you are a good person, mm -hmm. let's say because you have this very complex and abstract meta narrative that's running about a whole bunch of stuff and it dysregulates your ability to realize that no, you actually are a good person. Mm -hmm. So a lack of embodied clarity about that leads to a tremendous anxiety and need to clarify that you are a good person, mm. right? And what's interesting is that some of the best people in history have been perceived as being bad people mm. by the people immediately around them, by the culture around them. So mm. if you start to weigh mm. your kind of like the value of your soul because we're mm. in the insolvent domain. If you start to weigh the value of your soul by the lights of the world, right, you're lost, mm. right? Mm. So the ability to stand with a post-conventional and autonomous sense of morality requires deep processes of insolvent. And the only way out of the kind of like situation where we're now is that there actually is no virtue. There's only virtue signaling, mm. right? That's pure strategic projection of virtue as opposed to just living embodied virtue. The only way out of that is, you know, not thinking in a more complex way about justice, right? Which would be the development bit. Uh, and then also not kind of like 
adherent to some symbol of the moral law, which is what you get with transcendent, but actually this virtue ethic mm-hmm. right at the core. Yeah. That's right. Right. So that's what you get. You get the something like efficiency slash justice, and then something like deontology slash moral law. Then you get something like virtue ethic yeah. right in the middle. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's hard to attain without community right and again Uh, so it's like uh retreating from the meta narrative which problematizes your ability to be virtuous to your concrete embodied life where if you start to pay attention to your behaviors you can realize oh no i am capable of doing the right thing obviously doing the right thing in my immediate concrete lived environment not doing the right thing on social media and projecting to others that i've been doing the right thing see i'm doing the right thing but doing the right thing when maybe no one else is looking at Mm -hmm. all and then you start to just build that muscle of perceiving what lived virtue actually Mm -hmm. feels like now unfortunately because of Mm -hmm. the economic situation the educational situation there's actually it's sometimes hard to be in a situation where that's unambiguous right like sometimes your job like, is this the correct place for me to be? So that, but then again, that's why the insult work so dangerous, right? Mm. The development work will make you better at your job, mm. more efficient at your job. Mm. Transcendent work will make you able to settle into it, even if it's uncomfortable. Mm. The insult work will make you fucking quit that job. Mm. Uh, and so the feeling of embodied virtue and the absence of virtue signaling and the presence of actual embodied virtue, feeling that is what is sorely needed. Uh, and it's, you know, it's clear and it's not abstract. Um, you know, it's much more. And I mean, and again, illness, death, a whole bunch of things provide opportunities for this in your life. <laughs> like they will arise that you'll be in a position to do something that you can hold on to for the rest of your life that confirms your sense that, okay, I am, yes. I'm, I'm committed to the good and I'm able to, to do the good. Yeah. Um, and yeah. feeling that it's worth doing, even if no one sees it or is aware yeah. of it, um, yeah. is very important and becoming increasingly foreign kind of in, in, in the culture. Um, and so there's just this part of me that's like, okay, yeah, there's an EMP and the grid goes down and Facebook goes down and everything's fucked. And finally people get to act. Virtue ethics. Virtue ethics <laughs> kicks in finally. Are you going to stay true to your commitment to your neighbor or yeah. not? Yeah. Right. Are you going to be self-sacrificial, give food to someone else or not? Right. Like Victor Frankl in the, in the, in the concentration mm. camps, right. That people mm. are capable of tremendous virtue in conditions and almost more so in these conditions of incredible adversity. And so, yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, the best thing that can happen for people's embodied sense of their own, the value of their own soul is to be put into an extremely difficult situation where they have only their own wits and their own life um, and their own virtue uh, and no ability to like be on display Mm. for anyone else to watch. And then you see where the cookie crumbles. And this is part of what I was writing about in the, in the paper, you know, war broke out in heaven. Like this is it, right? This is the time where we actually are given this gift to become extraordinary people as opposed to just like day to day people. Um, And that doesn't mean being extraordinarily good at virtue signaling on social media. It actually means in your concrete immediate environment, what are you doing? 